This is an ABC podcast. My guest today is Om Dungel. Om was born in Bhutan, but he came to Australia 25 years ago. Om studied here and built a career as a business analyst at Telstra, and he now sits on many advisory boards and runs his own consultancy. Om has built a wonderful life here with his family, and he's deeply involved in his community in Western Sydney. But it's a very different place from his first home. Om grew up in a tiny village in the Himalayan ridges with no roads, no electricity and no running water. But he managed to get an education and while still a young man ended up as a senior telecommunications expert in the Bhutanese government. Om loved his country and didn't imagine a life anywhere else. That was until government persecution forced Om and many thousands of others to flee Bhutan and find themselves as refugees. His memoir is Bhutan to Blacktown. Hi, Om. Hello, Zara. Tell me about Blacktown, which you, you so love living in. What makes it a special place? Blacktown, I think, for people who do not know Blacktown, we are a council of 400,000 people. We come, people come from 188 different countries and we speak 182 languages. And we have the largest indigenous urban population in the country. So how, how rich can it get you know, <laughs> more than that? So we are a very, very rich, rich, rich community socially and culturally. The love and the friendship that we have with our neighbors is just wonderful. And, you know, they, they are from India, from Gujarat. And we got, you know, the, the next to them, we got a family which are like a mix of Chinese and Thai. And the other side, we've got people from the Pacific Island community. And down the road, like we've got a really representative community of Blacktown there. So you look for any different, you know, religion, culture, or country of birth, you'll find it in Fairwater. So I live in a place called Fairwater. It's a newly, you know, emerging suburb. And it's just beautiful. Your family are Hindu, but tell me how you helped out at Christmas a year or two back when the local Santa got sick with COVID. <laughs> that, that, that was one of the toughest. I was sweating, you wouldn't believe me, and now I can talk about it. But, you know, like uh, it was planned for a long time. And like initially we had the police planning to come and join us and the guy who was supposed to do this got COVID and they pulled out. So we requested one of the neighbours to do that and he volunteered to do it. And 8.30 at night, he calls me and says, um, somebody got you know sick at work and I have to isolate, self-isolate. I can't be the Santa tomorrow. So I panicked because there were hundreds of kids waiting to, you know, uh, for the chocolate, for the Santa to come in and distribute the chocolate. And I didn't know what to do. So... You know, I first port of call was my daughter. I said, you know, what do I do now? <laughs> like, what does a Santa do? She said, Google YouTube and you'll find a lot of information there. So I did Google <laughs> YouTube and, you know, I sort of learned what to do. And next morning, t 10 or 12, you know, neighbors joined me and we had a ball, like, you know. But by midday, it was, I don't know, like, what, 38, 39 degrees or more. 
and I was sweating and they thought that I might collapse. So they said they'd, you know, call off the day. But they were always, still, when I got back, you know, there were children waiting on the other side. So we said, okay, we'll resume this in the evening. So I went around in the evening all by myself, my wife driving me. You know, it was funny, but who cared? You know, the children were happy and I was happy. So. How did the kids react to you as a Bhutanese Santa? <laughs> that, that was the fun part, Sarah, because like, you know, I knew a lot of the kids and I knew their names. So I just said, hey, Jackie, how are you? <laughs> and then the Jackie couldn't believe that, you know, the Santa knew her name. <laughs> and I said, she's telling her mom, you know, mom, Santa knows my name. <laughs> and the funniest thing was like one of the kids said, does Santa know how to speak in Nepali? <laughs> wow, what a blessing. <laughs> like, <laughs> I said, oh, you know, I was told that Fairwater has some Nepali speaking children. So I have been taught Nepali. <laughs> And she got totally blown away. She said, the Santa speaks Nepali. <laughs> so it like, you know, and later on, my sort of, you know, cap dropped and some kids, you know, saw who real Santa saw was. was beneath that beard, that white yeah. beard. <laughs> and then, you know, like even now, she said, oh, Santa uncle is coming, you know. So I'm Santa uncle, you know, <laughs> in the town. <laughs> but that was one of the best thing, you know, in my experience. <laughs> when, when you first arrived in Australia, Australia in 1998, Om, it was to study for an MBA in Sydney. Yeah. But you also mm. really needed to find work to make money at the same time. Yeah. What do you remember about your interview for a job at Coles in, in the city centre? Uh, that was, uh, I, I don't know how many interviews I'd done. And this was another interview I thought, like, I was feeling like, a, I don't know what the word is, like the, the odd man out there because, you know, I was the oldest person there for sure. Like, I didn't have to ask anybody's age because, you know, all people working at the checkout, like, they were all 17, 18 years, 20 years old kid. And I was the only odd person out there. And we had this interview and like it was mass interview, like over 100 people, you know, like they were recruiting for number of stores that they were opening. And there were a lot of people who had turned up for the interview. And one of the things the interviewer asked was, what's your pet? What's your pet? Yeah. And I started panicking like I didn't have a pet in my life. The closest thing I had was we used to look after cows at home. So, like, you know, I didn't really enjoy doing that. But, you know, my parents would say, you know, go and look after the cows. And we did that. And I said, oh, cow. <laughs> and there was a huge laughter. Like, everybody started looking at me and, oh, that fellow's cow, he pet his cow. <laughs> and it was very odd. And I walked off there and everybody sort of pointing me, you know, oh, hey. And interestingly, the interviewer remembered that, you know, fellow who had a cow as a pet. And I was called for the second interview. <laughs> and I got the job. So I think that was a blessing in disguise, actually. <laughs> so you got the job and you, you were working at, uh, at this supermarket in the city. Yeah. Why was working on the checkout a good way to get a sense of this new country? Oh, that was, I think, when it happened, like, I first thing was I got a job. So that was uh, the, the best thing that had happened in life. I was now going to earn, you know, $220 a week which was used for me, you know, like from nothing to $220. But the best thing happened was like, I used to meet so many people and I met so many friends. And I still remember this couple who used to live close to Central Station. And they were living in a housing state, but like, uh, uh, you know, very 
gentle and nice couple and they became so close to me and they knew all about my wife and my daughter Smriti and they'll say how is Saroja doing overseas or how is Smriti how is at school etc and sometimes there will be a long queue there with people waiting to be served and this you know elderly couple would hang on and have a chat with me so I had sort of built those sort of relationships and it really helped me overcome and look at things put things in perspective because this elderly couple was living by themselves they had kids but they were not visiting them as often they were not living together and they were looking after themselves and sort of it really helped me to put things in perspective what if my daughter and you know wife are not with me now because i was working for a larger cause in long term interests of our family so mm-hmm. Uh, those sort of things really helped me overcome the you know f- you know anxiety and you know that frustration i had of being all by myself here you know living me and my wife and daughter overseas or my parents in the refugee camps in nepal where i was meant to look after them and i'm here all by myself struggling so it really really helped me build those relationships and you know see things in perspective they were eventually able to join you first of all your your wife and daughter arrived and you very happily reunited in in time for your graduation and <laughs> you were trying to rebuild this career you'd had a, a big professional role back home in Bhutan and i think you sent out 52 applications and got 52 rejections <laughs> what was going wrong in those interviews om yeah i i laugh at it now because i think there are simple things that you know really matter and that was the reason i decided when i got my job i said okay you know uh, whatever time i have spare time i have i'll go out and help all this skill migrants and refugees you know not to go through the same challenges i had because i w- had reached a point where i had almost given up so uh, one of the you know uh, migrant placement officer marin howell she I had almost given up but she wouldn't give up and she said one day said what's wrong I can't understand why you don't get a job so she did a mock interview and the next day I come she was so excited <laughs> oh my thing I know the problem and I'm sitting there oh you're looking at my legs I got a little embarrassed what do you mean by that <laughs> and said look at this video like every time the interviewer starts the in an interview i would look at him or her and then drop down like in in bhutan we are trained not look at somebody's eyes ah. you know straight so i was being a dutiful bhutanese <laughs> sticking to the norms that i was trained actually we are trained for a you know for three months to go through this cultural etiquette and i'm now i find it's almost like teaching people how to live in servitude you know mm. oh if you're seeing a minister you have to bow down this much if you're seeing the king you have to bow down so much and so and so so you know because your interviewer is a higher person i had a tendency to sort of immediately sort of drop down and look down and not maintain that eye contact and every time like you know even if the interview went exceptionally well i wouldn't get a job and finally the response i had feedback i had was that one either they assumed that i was either telling a lie <laughs> backing up stories along the way or i was not confident enough and they didn't want to give me a job and instead you were being the most polite person you possibly knew how to be following all yes, of your training yes. <laughs> so once that was pointed out to you how hard was that to change your manner to go into an interview and make eye contact and and present yourself in a way that was expected in australia but uh, the opposite from what was expected in in bhutan 
I think it, it took a while, like it wasn't easy because I would still drop, but I was very conscious. I put a rubber band in my hand. So uh, under, under the table, I'll just pull the rubber band and pull it and leave it so that it'll hurt me. And it sort of reminds me, hey, not to look down. So I had a sort of a reminder, you know, technique for me not to, you know, look down and practice that for a while. And I still remember when I think one time the Coles CEO walked into the Coles, uh, you know, lunchroom and just looked at him and I thought, who is this fellow? Like, you know, I've seen him somewhere and I had seen him on the website, <laughs> our <laughs> intranet site, and I asked my next to ne- next person you know, sitting next to me, we are having lunch and said, who is this fellow? And he's coolly eating there. Oh, that's our seal. I sort of panicked and I, I thought, wow, like this is unreal. Like a CEO walks in and like everybody's sitting and, you know, <laughs> no and one's not bowing. really bothered to stand up. <laughs> so I immediately stood up and, you know, I said, sir, you know, I pointed at the thing and he felt embarrassed and said, no, 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 no. And he pushed me back into the seat. And so I still uh, continued that for a long, mm. long time. But that's something I even continued. To an extent, even now, like, you know, if I see somebody elder to me, I feel, you know, that person deserves respect and I tend to offer that. But now at least I'm able to maintain that eye contact and I can, you know, maintain that for a longer period of time. Well, the the change has worked because you were successful getting a job and, and then rising through the ranks at, at Telstra and became a corporate guy here in, in, in <laughs> Sydney Om. Did yeah. you have much in common with your colleagues? Like, were you spending your time outside of the office in, in similar ways? Yeah. I think we had a lot of common in the sense that, you know, professionally we are all aspiring to the next level and we are to do the best. I think that that is a common thing that bound us together because I was working with the sales team. They were all about achieving that and I was all about you know, providing the right tools to support their argument. So that was one commonality there. But outside of it, I found there was, you know, not much common because like uh, social life were different, totally different. Because many of my friends would, you know, we come back and on a Monday morning conversations, you know, like we would, they'll say, you know, what they did during the weekend, you know, boating or, you know, uh, surfing or, you know, so and so. And sometimes like people say, hey, um, what did you do? And I'll venture out and say, oh, you know, by the way, you know, I helped this fellow to do this, or, you know, went out and volunteered to do this, or went to the airport to receive somebody at the airport, a refugee, or, you know, went and vacuumed somebody's house because they didn't know how to use the vacuum cleaner and all that. So mine wasn't really that exciting. (laughs) (laughs) And we had that difference. Uh, But slowly we started, like, you know, people started sort of, hey, what is this fellow talking all the time about? And there was a lot of interest to know what I did. You know? hmm. So I guess well, it was a two-way thing afterwards. In in the early days, Om, how many Bhutanese were living in Sydney? Okay, before I came, uh, I had my cousin, like technically cousin, but we don't say cousin in Adi, he's my brother. Our fathers are brothers. So interestingly, we've got the same name, uh, but he's a doctor, but veterinary doctor and I'm an engineer so that's how uh, people sort of differentiated us in our you know professional life in Bhutan or at home or in our family he's called big Om and I'm called small Om. so all my life I'm small <laughs> and uh, he was the only he and his family was the only Bhutanese family in Sydney that time hmm. 
And uh, the next was another friend of mine, like who was studying in uh, Brisbane. He moved here after his master's. And when I came in, we had three families. And a little later, another person. So he became the fourth person. But later on, we brought our families as well. So in total, we were four Buddhist families in Sydney. So a really little community. But then there was the news that Australia was going to follow the the lead of the US and resettle Bhutanese refugees from camps in Nepal. And and you were actively encouraging family and friends that you knew to come to Australia. The first Bhutanese families to get visas under that resettlement program began arriving in 2008. Tell me about that time, Om. What, What were those months like and what was your involvement back then? Yeah, it was interesting because in Sydney, it was in September, on second, 3rd of September 2008, the first you know, group of you know, Bhutanese arrived in Sydney. And in that group, there were 17 people in total. And at that time, we were 17 Bhutanese in Sydney around that time. So our population doubled. And it was the most exciting time because to decide to leave and to come to Australia was very hard for me. And now I thought it's an opportunity for me to sort of repay that back. And I went wholeheartedly, you know, 100 percent. How do I now help people to settle in this country and not become dependent on social welfare? Um, How quickly we could get them off, you know, centering benefit and they become independent. So that was our sort of key objective when we first started our conversation with these four families and we formed an association called Association of Bhutanese in Australia in Sydney. And we said, okay, let's start liaising with the government, let's liaising with the service providers and work together collaboratively so that we can support the service providers and make their life easier. And at the same time, we involved in supporting our own community. What were the arrivals like, Om? Because you'd been, as you, you know, you're explaining, pretty isolated from the wider Bhutanese community in Australia. Yeah. So when you'd mm. drive out to the airport and, and wait at that gate, what, what was it like to see people and what sort of emotions were, were happening from people as they came through that, that gate into Australia? I think it's, it's, uh, it's, you can't really explain that in words. I think I can just feel it. And I think I just want to thank Australian government for that generosity because, like, you know, I don't know whether we were the most deserving people to sort of be settled in this country, but we got that opportunity. So, you know, we just want to thank, you know, on behalf of the people, you know, who has resettled on behalf of the Putinese people, thank the government and people of Australia for, you know, allowing us to start a new life in this country all over again. So that's that's the starting point. Secondly, to... There are there is so much support that the government provides for the new arrivals, and there are service providers. They'll send their caseworkers and case managers to receive people at the airport. But it's nothing like you know for new arrivals to see somebody that you know, or somebody who speaks your language, or somebody from your village, or somebody who has bought a cow from your parents. Or, you know all those kind of relationships. So I thought that that the first experience when you land in a new country stays with you forever. So I made it a point that like you know we from within the community, if we, some of us, you know, could go to the airport and receive these new arrivals along with the service providers, that would be a huge bonus for the new arrivals and they could carry on that, you know, new experience, you know, throughout their life here in Australia. So 
That was one starting point. One very special arrival in December of that year of 2008 was your parents. How did you greet them? What was that reunion like? Uh, I sort of, you know, this was, again, unbelievable when actually I saw my parents come out there and, like, until I bowed down and touched their feet, like, I wasn't sure it's real or not. And there was my father, my mother, and my, you know, younger brother Gopal and his wife, Pavitra, and then they had a young one-year-old. She was, you know, my sister-in-law was holding her, just touched their feet and, like, to see, actually physically touch them was real. And, you know, this was a really dream come true to have my parents over here in Australia. Before you came to Australia, you had, through your work uh, with the government, experienced other cultures. You'd been to to the States, to Japan, you know, you were really well-travelled. But for a lot of this new intake of refugees, this was really a completely different culture for them to come to in Australia. What were some of the first things that you had to show people when they arrived in Sydney? Yeah, that it it was very interesting because like we've got they go through an orientation program before they leave Nepal, you know, before coming to Australia, but then that can be so overwhelming and people sort of you know don't remember many things or remember few things which scare them. Say for example, one thing was like people were told that you know you should be very careful when you light up you know, the stove at home because if there is a smoke, you know, like the alarm will go off and police will come. And that was the scariest thing. And we had one family, like, you know, we visited them the first day and, you know, it was almost 9.30. We visited them and I said, oh, have you had your meal? And they said, no. I said, what happened? Uh, we were too scared to, you know, light up the fire, like a stove. Because they were told that, you know, if there's smoke, police might come and they were too scared. So my wife and I got to work and we had taken some veggies and, you know, we already had a dinner, but, you know, 9.30, by 10 o'clock, we had the dinner ready and we had our second dinner. (laughs) So that was (laughs) something, you know, like we would work with all the time and, you know, telling people how to use a vacuum cleaner to, you know, like flushing the toilet to, you know, getting things in the right bin, for example, every you know, little things, which a lot of service providers sort of take them through an orientation, but you can't remember everything. So just visiting them regularly and, you know, reminding them and working through together, uh, build up that relationships and also help them through this, you know, initial settlement phase. How much driving were you and your wife doing back in those months? (laughs) I think uh, I still remember like, you know, when we first bought our car and like, you know, we were very conscious how much we drive because the petrol was, you know, for us, income that we had, you know, we were very conscious. And we used to drive anywhere between 10, 11,000 a year. And after the people arrived, I think the first two years was between 37 and 39,000 kilometers. So, so a lot of petrol. It was a lot yeah. of driving, but it was so much fun. You wouldn't believe, like, you know, I loved every every kilometers of those driving. <laughs> Yeah, as you're describing these people, Om, who are arriving, you know, with no money, often with very little formal education, with very little, why were you encouraging people to volunteer right from the start? What was the thinking there? Yeah, I think what we learned when we became refugees was like, you know, I had sort of everything in life and everything was going well. 
And when we became refugees, even when I said, like, you know, I'm Om Dungil, like, you know, I had nothing to prove that. I didn't have a passport to or sort of say, you know, who I am. So I had to prove by my action and my, you know, honesty and trust that I needed to build with people. So here again, like, we wanted people to not focus on what they didn't have, rather what they had. And we found that every one of them had something to offer. And that's that's the key thing in life, you know, like I found that, you know, like whatever situation a person is, you know, whether you are begging on the street of Sydney or somewhere, like you always have something to offer. You have your passion, you have your strengths, inner strengths. And if you tap onto that, you know, people, you know, just open their eyes and they get, you know, connected and they can sort of flourish. So we wanted to sort of, you know, get people to start thinking of what do they have? What can they offer rather than what do they need? So by changing that mindset, you know, people are already feeling empowered to be helping somebody else. So that that was the key thing, you know, changing that mindset. Number two, it was about helping your fellow community member who had just come. So if I went and receive somebody at the airport, like, you know, that person will, in a month's time, go and receive somebody else at the airport. So one, that person will develop that sense of giving back something. Number two, gain that local experience. And, you know, in the process, you know, like when they are ready to apply for a job, we can be a referee for them. Many of the women in the community started getting jobs, learning to drive, leading really different lives than they had been living in Bhutan. What about your own mum, Om? I mean, she was already in her 70s when she arrived in Australia. Has she changed since coming here? I think um, <laughs> my mum is, I think every mum is an amazing woman, but um, my mum, uh, having had 14 children, <laughs> and she's become a lot more like, you know, childlike. And <laughs> one day I saw like, you know, uh, my brother-in-law post a thing on our family messenger group. You know, my mom and her younger sister, my auntie, were in a swing. You know, they were both 80-something. <laughs> on a swing. And, on a swing <laughs> and like it really enjoying. And my dad sitting there and wondering, what's this, what's happened to this woman here? <laughs> And even the other day, like we had a big event within the family and um, there was music and, you know, women started dancing and all that. And my mom, she felt comfortable and she stood up and she was dancing as well. She's reluctant to be the first one, but like she'll push others. And, you know, once they start and she'll join. So she's turning 93 next month. And she's going really, really strong. And on the dance floor at 93 is fantastic. (laughs) Yes. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Um, let's talk about this world that you came from, the place that you grew <laughs> up in, the village in, in southern Bhutan where you yeah. were born. What's it look like, the countryside there? Is it a beautiful place? Oh, like when I think of it now, like, you know, that was so beautiful. Like, you know, when I, it was very remote. You know, we didn't have running water, or telephone, electricity, nothing. 
but still it was beautiful life was in today's context pretty hard but again we really enjoyed uh, you know living in that beautiful village because they, 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 we didn't really see the luxuries of life in the modern luxuries of life so we were very ignorant and we loved what we had there so you know we used to my parents to run a shop and they had enough land and we used to have a pretty comfortable life uh, as compared to many in the you know villages you mentioned on um, that your parents had 14 children <laughs> you were number 6 in six. in the line what were meal times like in your house where did you all sit <laughs> i think it was quite chaotic but uh, again when i say 14 like i don't think we 14 sat together <laughs> any time together so when i was number 6 there were just six of us when i was 12 i think i had a few more you know born before i left for my high school so it used to be quite chaotic like somebody will say i want this i don't want that i want this and i again like you know i admire my mom because like anybody those days would you know use a stick to you know discipline their children but i was checking with my siblings and nobody has even got a pat on the back like you know forget our stick so my mom never hit any one of us What happened at bedtime? Where where did you sleep? What was the arrangement in in your home? I think generally we had some had a bed, some had some slept on the floor, uh, and we would always share a bed. Like I always slept with my dad. I felt safe like you know if dad would go anywhere, I would sneak in next to mom and there was always a child next to mom, you know my younger sisters. so i would push them on the side and i would always sneak in uh, until i was 12 i was to get really scared sleeping by myself so you know my sisters would you know two of them would sleep together others will at least two of us would share a bed together mm. but i always had the pleasure of sleeping next to dad on a bed <laughs> do you remember having much time alone as a child or no always a houseful most of the time what was your first school like it was a, a school with i think uh, up to year 5 those days and we had about 6 or 7 teachers the headmaster was amazing like still remember he was from south india from kerala and uh, we used to have a lot of teachers from kerala from south southern india what was amazing about him how do you remember him he, he was even today i can imagine him this white shirt you know nicely ironed out and you know blue trousers and every day he was like that like i haven't seen him like him without that either a blue trousers or a black trousers but always a white shirt and it was so clean and you know tidy all the time and he was a very strict disciplinarian but he also cared for us and did he see something in you do you think i mean not all of your brothers and sisters were attending this school was there something that the the headmaster saw in you and your potential um i think he actually made me who i am today in in many ways because um i loved maths and i loved science and when i was in year 4 i think like he said oh you are good in maths and science you'll become an engineer and i didn't know what engineer was i came and asked my parents they didn't know what engineer was uh, but then when later on like people saying what's your ambition i started writing engineer and later on learned what, what an engineer was but because of that i think i had that ingrained interest in maths and science and you are such a caring you know gentleman and also very strict disciplinarian 
you, you did very well in your exams and you were given the chance to go to high school, but it meant that you had to leave this very close-knit family. Mm. Your father travelled with you to, to the new town that you'd live in to go to school. What was that goodbye with your dad like? Um, the way he did things was very subtle. Like he just even didn't hug me or anything. Like he just said, okay, you know, I'm going. And that was his way of dealing with things, I think, because he didn't want to, you know, stay on and hang on and get that emotions. And I think he was quite emotional himself. Didn't know what he was doing, perhaps like, you know, leaving me, you know, a 12-year-old kid, you know, in a hostel and, you know. But the reason I admire so much my parents is like they were not educated. They were almost illiterate. And then yet they had such a you know, vision for their children. Like, you know, they worked so hard, but then they wanted the best for their children. And to make that decision for, you know, for my dad to take me to school and leave me there, the wisdom he had to do that, I think, uh, is amazing, you know, for a man who was working so hard and I would have been a much more better health, you know, in the farm than, you know, studying. So it was a a cost to him to let you go and and do this. That's right. You described that, you know, at home you'd slept right next to your dad at night. What were things like at this hostel for, for school? Where did you sleep there? You know, it started becoming dark. I was just thinking, what do I do today, you know? And uh, my saviour was, uh, you know, my brother, Dr. Om, Big Om as they call him. Uh, he was already in the school, in the hostel. And he made a ni- he made the bed nicely for me and he said, okay, you sleep here. And he, he used to have bunk beds and he made my bed underneath and he took the bunk. He was sleeping upstairs, you know, like on the bunk bed and... Uh, after a while, he saw that, you know, I wasn't very comfortable. Then he realized, you know, I wasn't very comfortable sleeping by myself. So he said, oh, you know, like, OK, if you want, you can come and sleep with me. So I jumped and, you know, slept with him <laughs> for the next three years. <laughs> and every time he'll say, like, you know, it's so hot, you know, like you sleep in your own bed. But luckily, he used to sleep early. So by the time we sleep, he would be a pass asleep. So I sneak in beside <laughs> him and he just gave up, you know, telling me to sleep in my own bed. And until he had eight, I used to sleep next to him. <laughs> Bhutan is, is a monarchy. And in year 10, you and some other students were invited to the palace to meet the king. Tell me what happened. Oh, it was... Uh... In a way, very scary thing, but also I was so excited because, like, you know, to have that opportunity to meet the king, uh, you know, like, um, it was amazing. And um, we were ushered into the palace and we were told to wait. And then, again, as I said in the beginning, like, we cannot look at the king. So they announced that the king is entering the room. Then we all stood up and you know, we were looking down and I could see the boots, you know, like they are special boots that the king wears. And I saw that the king is coming and he sat next to us and, you know, we were told to sit down and we can't look at the king. So we assume that is the king. there. <laughs> but then he started asking questions, what's your name? And like, we have to assume like, you know, he's asking you second guess and you start saying, you know, I'm so and so and, you know, introduce yourself and whatever questions he asks, you just have to, you know, respond. So it was, yeah, like once in a life experience, you know, meeting the king and in having that conversation and he asked what we wanted to do. And he was very, very inspiring. And you know? I said, OK, you know, I'm he asked what I wanted to do, for example, and I said, I want to be an engineer. And he said, oh, we need many engineers because we are building this 
Chuka Dam and like, you know, we've got many projects coming and he was so, so inspiring, you know, when I first met him. There were no universities in Bhutan. So after you finished high school and your national service, you had a scholarship to go and study engineering as you'd planned to in Bangladesh and yeah. then moved to the capital of, of Bhutan to Thimpu, if I'm yeah. saying that correctly, Om. Yes, what, Thimpu, that's what, correct. What does it look like, this town, this city? What's it like? Those days, Thimpu was, uh, had a population of about, I think, 29,000 people. So it was fairly small. Mm. And uh, we had a government of 13,000 strong, you know, bureaucracy. And I was told that telecommunications was one of the worst sort of department, you know. It didn't have many, you know, uh, qualified people from the country. And I was like, if I joined, I would be the third senior most telecom engineer in the country. Mm. At w- uh, in your 20s? Yes. So <laughs> there were just two telecom engineers in the country before I joined the department. So I thought, you know, like, uh, you know, if, if it is the worst one, maybe I have an opportunity to do something about it. So with that challenge, I sort of joined the Department of Telecommunications. And uh, again, like in the next few years, like three, four years was one of the best times of my life. You were were sometimes called to the palace as you had this role in telecommunications. When they'd call you to the palace, what was it for, Om? Oh, it was, I was initially made the in charge of the responsible for the telecommunication network, Capital Cities Telecommunication Network. And you might think that that's big capital cities telephone network, but we had a total of 900 lines. The exchange was, the capacity was 900 lines, telephones. So there are 900 telephones in whole of capital city. And at any given time, about 50% would work and the rest wouldn't work. And the network was very (laughs) non-discriminatory. Even the palace phone would go wrong. <laughs> so you'd be called to fix the telephone yeah. line, would you? And we, like, you know, I was told that the palace phone is, you know, off. So I sent some technicians and my boss nearly got a heart attack. He called me and said, oh, how can you do that? Like, how can you send a technician to the palace? So you have to go by yourself. So, you know, next time, you know, behaved myself, I went there and, you know, like one time I was told, like uh, the palace had brought a washing machine and they needed me to come and fix it. I thought, I haven't never seen a washing machine. Because I'm an engineer, I was told that, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That you'd know how to do it. How to do it. (laughs) Oh, I panicked. I didn't know what to do. So I went to my colleague, you know, Tinle Doji. He he studied in Perth and he, he was a real engineer. I'm more a theory man. And he's a hands-on man and like he always had his tools with him and, you know, uh, he sort of knew how things worked, etc. So I, I panicked and I went to his room and I said, Tinley, I've got a problem. What's the problem? He said, you know, I told him that you know, I've been called to the palace to fix a washing machine. I've never seen a washing machine in my life. How do I do it? And he said, just go. He was teasing me. But ultimately, he said, OK, let's go. And he, you know, he, we went there and he fixed it. <laughs> Thank goodness. And I was the happiest man. <laughs> <laughs> so what sort of palace was it? Or what did it look like inside the king's palace? Ah, when you say palace, like it's, a, it's actually a log house. Like it was built by locks and internally they paneled it. So it was a very small, like I think three or four bedrooms and uh, 
of course, we didn't go to all the bedrooms, but we saw that. And we were confined to the living room where the phone was and the other washing machine was on the other room. So we just accessed those. But it was a small palace and there was a separate sort of sunroom where we were told that the king uses it for his office work. So it was a fairly, you know, small, very modest sort of palace. He didn't live in the real palace. There was another palace called the Sitchenling Palace, which is a big one and the uh, palace that his fathers used and forefathers, grandfathers used. But he built a very, the fourth king built a small palace for himself. It was a log house. So you were building this successful career and, and you'd kind of had these positive interactions with the king over your over your lifetime. But... What was happening around you, Om, to other Bhutanese people with a, a Nepalese background under the orders of this king? What, what was going on in Bhutan more generally? Uh, this is sad because, like, so far, as I've said, like, you know, I have all this good interaction with the king and I think the country was progressing so well. Everything was happening, like the telecommunications, uh, you know, power department, the roads department, everything was happening. There was a lot of interest from international community. There was a lot of donor countries wanting to develop the country. And we had one of the golden period of our history in Bhutan during that time, during the 80s. But what the government sort of, I think, again, these are, uh, you know, conjectures like, you know, uh, when the Berlin Wall fell or the democracy movement in Nepal, when all that happened, perhaps like, you know, people around the king must have, you know, put in this fear in the king that, you know, what if we have democracy in this country? And they saw that, you know, that the numbers came like, you know, if the Nepalese people are more then would that mean, you know, they would be powerful in the country, ruling the country, etc. So that was a fear put into the king and the government sort of did a nationwide census and put people into different categories with an intention to evict people from the country. Mm-hmm. So people were put in seven different categories and said only the first category is real Bhutanese. If you are married to a non-Bhutanese, you are not a Bhutanese anymore and created a lot of uncertainty in the country. And so, so even th- though your family had been in Bhutan for a few generations, generations you were yes. now considered not really a, a true Bhutanese. Did you assume, so, though, Om, at this point, point, uh, given, you know, the role that you had in the government and your positive experiences and, yeah. and your, your real sense of yourself and your family sense of themselves as Bhutanese, that this yeah. would kind of blow over, that this was some, you know, upsetting or annoying political tension, but you'd just be able to ride it out? We were totally ignorant, Sarah. Like, uh, we never expected, we were total political dovies. Like, you know, the, the, we would never imagine a life you know, outside of what we were doing, you know, like I was so focused on developing this telecommunication in the country, I wouldn't like be distracted by anything. And so were many others. And we didn't see any of this coming, you know, like we were generally very ignorant of what is going on and what the government was planning to do. And what happened with your father on back in your home village that really showed you this was something that you had to take seriously? Yeah, and given the situation in the country, like we couldn't pick up a phone and call my parents. There was no phone system. So unless we visited, we wouldn't know what's happening. So people were arbitrarily arrested and tortured. And my 
father happened to be one of those victims as well. So he was neither politically active nor did anything nor participated in a demonstration, but because he ran a shop and like he was one of those, you know, successful businessmen running a shop and running his own farm, etc. They picked up people like him and put them in prison and tortured them for months. And after three months when, like, you know, he knew that he wouldn't survive this torture, he agreed to leave the country. Mm. They were told that if you leave the country, we will release you. So he said, I I agreed to leave the country and he was released. But he had nowhere else to go. So he stayed on. And after, again, several months, the army came again and took him back again. And he was, again, put in prison and tortured. Oh, that must have been such a incredibly distressing thing for you to hear as yeah. as his son. You must have been very concerned for him or, or in pain on, on his yeah. behalf. Yeah. It was so difficult, uh, especially for my mum, because, like, she was in a constant fear, what would happen tomorrow? Would my other child be taken? Would my other daughters be taken? And women are so strong. And, like, you know, during such difficult times, they are our strength. And I don't know how my mum survived and, you know, coped with things. Uh, I think it was much more, many times, you know, difficult for my mum than many of us, I think, Mm. you know. To see my dad with all that scars, you know, from that torture was just, you know, unimaginable. He managed to flee to Nepal and you were visiting your home village trying to work out what to do. Next, your mum went outside and dug up a jar where she had hidden all of her savings. What had happened to the money? Oh, like (laughs) there's an aluminium aluminium jar and like she had covered it and she goes with a torchlight, you know, very dimly lit torchlight because we were very scared, you know, army might, you know, come and raid us because I was visiting them. And we all are sitting around a you know small sort of fireplace in the kitchen, and uh, mum comes back with the torchlight and the can, and she sort of puts it on the side. We can't really see it much, but she puts her hand inside, and I was watching her face, and it just goes pale, like you know she's almost collapsing. I said, "What happened, mum?" She says, "It's all water here. Mm. The water had seeped in." And it's so smelly, like, you know, the, the notes, you know, like once water sips in, they, they're so smelly. And we pulled out one bundle and like, you know, we couldn't separate them. So we said, OK, like, let's take out the water and see if we can do anything. So we wrapped them in a towel and then put it under our car carpet and spread it under the carpet and brought it to Thimpu and tried to recover it and we did recover most of it, you know, by putting them on a heater and, you know, every evening we used to have this one bundle at a time and we used to put them on the heater and slowly we recovered most of it. Oh, my goodness, what a time for your family. <laughs> Were you under surveillance in, in the city as, as the political situation became more intense or the persecution of, of Bhutanese people of Nepalese background became more strident? Um, were you yeah. under surveillance? Were you in danger of being arrested yourself? I think around the time, like, my father was put in prison and tortured, like, I came back to Thimpu and I started asking this, why is this happening? Because I knew a lot of people, you know, like, 
quite closely, like say for our own minister, like of communications, you know, I knew him very well. And he was more like my father, you know, he was very good to me. And similarly, I went to so many other people, like in you know, a minister of foreign affairs, minister of communication and so many other people close to the king. And I started asking those questions. After that, I was told not to leave the capital city. So if I needed to leave the capital city, even for work, then I needed to get permission. So for a year, I was kept under surveillance. And then fortunately, I had some good contacts in the police. And, you know, they told me that, um, you know, like in the next few days, they're going to arrest you. So when I had that, you know, my wife and I pulled our blanket over our head and started discussing what do we do now? Because my phone was tapped and like we didn't, we had people sort of, passing by our house, like the security people would, you know, come around. You mean to keep yourself safe while you were discussing your plan, you had to hide under a blanket? That's right. Yeah. So it was so scary. Like we couldn't talk and we were worried that, you know, somebody might be listening. So it was so scary. So we discussed that and we decided that maybe I live alone because we both worked in the government. And if we all left together, then they would suspect and, you know, arrest us. So I, I made a trip to Funseling, the border town, where I was responsible for the you know stores. So I made a work trip and then I made arrangement to spend the weekend uh, in Funseling to do some personal work. So with that excuse, I drove down to Funseling in my own car. And those days the borders were quite open, so I could drive across to India and then, uh, you know, left the country. That was one of the most terrible times of my life because I had to leave my two-year-old daughter and wife, never knowing I would ever see them again. And uh, yeah, but fortunately, they would join me later. And then we all went to Nepal and started a new life there. This experience of, of being a refugee that began for you and, and your family then in 1992, of, of going from this person who had a lot of power and influence to someone with nothing at all, how has that shaped the man you are now? do you think? I think uh, everything happens for a reason. You know, having gone through what we went through that time, like, you know, seen a civil servant there, it's a privileged sort of position to be working in that position in the government. And suddenly you find that you've got nothing. And the worst thing is like you've got a young child to look after and, you know, you've got elderly parents to look after. How do you do that? And how do you just respond to what has happened to you? And the first thing I saw when I became a refugee like the, was in the afternoon when I arrived in Nepal and we, I wanted to visit the refugee camps and it started pouring and it was windy and like, you know, they, they had strung this tarpaulin from one tree to other tree and, you know, they were trying to hold those tarpaulins in place so that stuff doesn't get wet. And that was the first sight of refugee camps for me. And I could see these elderly people, you know, sick and children sort of, you know, looking for shelter. And I thought, what a, how a human being could do this to another human being, you know. And that's how I started sort of committing myself that, you know, if I ever have an opportunity to help somebody, like a child or elderly people, I'll always do that. You know, that's my commitment. The word refugee, it's its associated with, I guess, vulnerability and, and with loss. How do you think of, of that term, of that category, refugee? What associations does it have for you? In the initial stage, it's important that it is associated with some sympathy and compassion and sense of help. And that's fantastic because we need to survive in the first place. But together with that, 
I've sort of found that we need to really redefine refugees with their strength. Because once you become a refugee, you develop a lot of resilience and perseverance. And I think that's something we really need to you know, focus on rather than just focusing on the helplessness of a refugee. So how do we redefine refugees with their strengths and start sort of engaging them rather than providing them with something? So there's an old saying, you know, like which is so relevant in this space as well. So teach people how to fish rather than give them a fish. So relevant in the refugee space as well. You've got to know a lot of people from all those different communities, as you were describing your your home in, in Blacktown, which is where you've been based since you've been living in Australia. And the African community in particular have taught you some things. What have you learnt from them, Om? <laughs> These are just wonderful people. Like, you know, like I've had amazing time, you know, spending some fun time with them. But I've also learned to be, you know, like a little more relaxed than how I have been <laughs> because I've been to many of those events and, you know, even start pretty, you know, not on time, but they are so good. Like, you know, they really have fun. You know, it's, once it picks up, you know, you really enjoy life. So I think we take life too seriously and they've taught me that, hey, you know, like just relax. They've knocked so. <laughs> a bureaucrat out of you, have they? Yes, yes. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you yeah. for sharing your, your story with us on Conversations. I've, I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Podcast Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Om Dungel was my guest on Conversations today and Om's book, written with James Button, is called Bhutan to Blacktown. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Attention passengers. Uh, Hello Conversations listeners, Jonathan Green here from RN's Return Ticket. On our show, we take you on journeys of the mind, no passport required. We'll chat with some fine guides in destinations you'd love to travel to. Come travel with us here on Return Ticket. You'll find all the episodes on the ABC Listen app.